Welcome to Bible Over Brews. Deep thoughts fermented over time and text. Here we come tonight, Prophecy with Brian Godawa. I'm here, Aaron, Crew Juice, Viverka, and I've got Gumby. Hey, what's happening? Mike. Hi, everyone. And George. Hola. <laughs> He's going to be a resident skeptic. <laughs> I'm here. I'm ready. I'm uh, ready for uh, some good questions for you guys, so I'm ready to bring some heat. Which is awesome. So, I'll be patching in Brian Gadoa, and uh, while I'm doing that, I'm going to also be pouring the beer and let Mike and Gumby talk. Right on. Looking forward to the beer tonight. Me too. I uh, got appetizer pistachios, peppers pistachios, and... Uh, Solid. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm ready to go. I'm a little thirsty. Yeah, you were tearing those up, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from Masthead, eh? Yep. This is Masthead. Masthead is an Ohio brewery, right? Yes. And I think, what, at the National Beer Competition, they just won some awards. I just saw it in the wow. Pain Dealer or something like that as well. They're, yeah, they're, they're the real deal, man. Hey. And I think Ohio has got a really good uh, brewery scene as well. I mean, uh, just even like in this area, right? Ohio City and everything like that. I mean, it's just like A-list up here. Um, yeah. Have you guys been to that brick and barrel place yet? No. I'm not. It mm-hmm. is down on, uh, like really down in there in the flats by... Uh, that bridge that raises up uh, on Columbus Road, like really kind of tucked down. Yeah, there. I think I know what you're talking about. And uh, um, real small. I mean, it's like, what I love about it is that like there's all these fancy places and then it looks like this garage almost. Okay. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, but uh, no, they have a lot of good beers and then uh, real strong too. I mean, I think they have like three that are over 9%. Wow. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd recommend it though. It's fun. And, and it's like, you know, they're local, you know, business owners. It's cool. Right on. I th- and I think that's what's cool about this. I you think you'd run out of beers to sample if you're just doing local like we are. It's not the case. They're popping up all over the place. Absolutely. It's never ending, it seems like. Yeah. And Gumby and I, we actually... Look at that. Went out... Oh, man. And preemptively explored Masthead. Thank you, Juicer. We so, did. Mike. Yes, sir. What kind of beer are we having right now? Oh, it looks like uh, we got smoked Ohio peach. Wow. Okay, so it's a uh, um, it's aged Belgian style wheat over a hundred pounds of fresh Ohio peaches, smoked with pecan wood. The process adds a touch of sweetness and a smoky character that blends with Belgian East esters, and elevates the orange and lemon peel character, yielding a flavor yet elegant beer. Flavor I have my first question for you guys. Shoot, sure. what's an ester? <laughs> an ester, a Belgian ester. Yeah, that's so. The ester is is like the flavor of the wood. It's actually the. An ester is more. You or probably could have the, stopped there. I would have just the fla- believed you. The flavors of the resins <laughs> in the wood. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, All right. I was gonna go with you. Didn't hear the story of Esther in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh, all right. come on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I read all that. Now, right, but now try this. This one so impressed Gumby and I. We had to make sure this was one of the ones we brought tonight. Yeah, I had a sip. And it is delicious. Um, it's ABV 5.6 and IBU of 20. But the tw- the IBU, I don't know. I think that says it's a little high. It doesn't taste. It's not exceptionally high. Uh, it's incredibly smooth. I like it's because it tastes like you are eating a peach next to a campfire. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. And see, I'm going to disagree. Actually, I'm not a huge fan of smoky beers. Actually, I'd say one of the worst beers I ever had was a smoky porter. Okay. And uh, this one's not bad. I'm enjoying this one. But yeah, when I've, I've had some like really smoky dark beers and I'm like, I'll pass. It's actually a, uh, 
Mexican smoked porter. So it was a little, again, how we were talking about the jalapeno before right. we were, all right. Yeah. So it was spicy and That's, smoky. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, no, thank you. That's it was an like, identity crisis. I literally quit drinking beer for like a week. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But this isn't bad. This is light and smoky. Yeah. So I, I this like one's that. light. It's a little hazy, um, probably because it does have the fruit inside of it. But it's so different. I love it. It's so smooth. It is unique. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. And like I said earlier, I, I really enjoyed <laughs> their jalapeno. It was so good. But we had to pick two to bring back. Right. And so we went with this and later oh, the can't, uh, can't that coffee stuff. Oh, so good. So <laughs> like you were mentioning, though, it's cool that, like, we have such a good beer scene that, like, they could try smoked peach or whatever, yeah. you know, interesting beers like this. It's, a, it's fun, you know, whether yeah. it's your thing or not. It's something yeah. to try or yeah, fun to yeah. try. I really like it, but it, I mean, it's so smooth. You you it's can drink scary it. scary smooth. Yeah, like, I've, I've almost <laughs> finished my glass. Right, so, right, right you know, it's, down. Yeah, it's like Gatorade almost. It, it it's is. like it's quenching a thirst. Yeah, it's, it's, it's scary smooth. It has, like, pop. I it, mean, it it's really good. It's it doesn't. It doesn't even have like a, a beer flavor. It's uh-huh. it's silky and smooth and goodness all the way around. I don't know if I can have like three in a row. I'd like to chase change it up. I think um, mm-hmm. just because it is so unique. I, but uh, it's really good. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. You know, also um, have you guys ever had that bumbleberry blueberry beer? Yeah. Yes. See mm-hmm. that. I had like one of those at a bar. I'm like, oh, this is delicious. And then I bought a six pack. And then after two, I was like, this is, yeah, I was yeah, done with it. Yeah, I'm with you. Sweet. I think I can yeah. do one of these after that. Yeah. Right, done. Well, and that's why it's nice. Uh, Gumby and I, we went down there and we did, what, two flats? Yeah. And that's what was nice is the flats because mm-hmm. they're only, what, six ounces each? Mm-hmm. So you can sit there and you can do like, like two or maybe even three flats. And. You know, you don't get too toasted, but you get a good variety of flavors, and they they have incredible variety of flavors there. Yeah, yeah, you want to do that. The food was good too. I very much enjoyed it. it they have a lot of barrels there, where yeah. I, I guess they actually use to brew. Yeah, and they do actual barrel aging. Yep. And, and, yeah, I was gonna say, is that and, how they get the smoky? I don't, I'm just assuming. I know that's oh, how yeah. they do it in whiskey, right? So I, mm-hmm. they do that with the beer too. Is that how they get the smoky? Yep. Yes, and okay. You're going to be our resident skeptic. Skeptic. You got it. Skeptic. 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 Uh, One of those. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm here. So me and Juice, so we, we always go back and forth. And we always have some intriguing <laughs> conversations. And mm-hmm. one thing you could always count on Juice, too. I don't know why I'm staying up at late thinking about uh, spirituality. But I could, like, text Juice at, like, 3 in the morning. Why does it say this? And then he'll actually text back. I'm like, he's awake? I'm like, I thought you were going to wanted to text you while I was on my mind. And he right, just gets right. me right back. Yeah. I thought I had you. <laughs> so what is your background as a skeptic? Are you Christian? Or are you atheist? What's... Yeah, you know what? I um, And I don't know. Uh, again, I'm not bringing my total A-game today. I believe I am agnostic because um, essentially I uh, – not that I, I'm not going to deny that there could be a higher power. I just don't subscribe – the notion that it's what's written in this here book um and i just don't know if we have the capacity of knowing gotcha um so i believe that is it i think that makes an agnostic yeah but sounds like it to me probably, yeah somewhere in there yeah. i guess i didn't yeah i guess i could have googled it known better but um <laughs> but he is doing his due diligence he uh then starting to read it's not an easy read but yeah trying to get there the reading the bible yeah okay it's not easy. <laughs> it isn't. How are you tonight? 
Good, man. How are you guys? Uh, so sorry about uh, possibly, or so sorry about my possible delay, but I got back in time. No, no worries. We're very happy to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm very honored, Brian. Yeah, I'm actually excited. Uh, I've, uh, I've I've been diving into uh, into Tyron. I'm about about halfway through now. Cool. Yeah. Oh, it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's been selling it to all of us, so we're gonna have to all all line up for the books. So he's doing a good job. I was talking you. I was uh, talking you up already um, about your your Hollywood career, and uh, your your first venture in was to end all wars. Yep. So, tell us uh, what brought you into into the industry. Yeah, you know, Two Under Wars was my first movie that I got made. That was like back in 2001 or 2002. And, and um, it was one of those situations where, uh, you know, you, you break in with the, the best thing you, you could ever experience. And so it's all downhill from there because the um, thing about independent film is um, you – everyone's in it together. You're all helping each other out. And the advantage for someone like me as a writer is they can't they don't have the money to 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 pay other people to rewrite you, so they so you do all the rewrites for them and you do all the fixes and that means I end up getting the sole credit. And <laughs> um, yeah, and I was and, and you know plus it's, it's the kind of movie that I'm probably the most proud of still of anything I've done. Um, you know, because again, as an independent film, you also control the content and. The writer, the producer, and the director, we were all on the same page in terms of our worldview and in terms of, you know, our understanding of what we wanted to do. Um, but the more you get into the studio system in Hollywood, you know, the more you lose control and the more you get crap. So, um, Well, you got to make the movie uh, appealing to everybody, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, and then, therefore, it appeals to nobody. Yeah. <laughs> or or let's put it this way, the lowest common denominator, but it often leaves you unsatisfied, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, there's good movies. There's good studio movies. But I'm just saying, yeah, you, you get – plus the kind of message, the kind of meaning that we put into the movies are not – it's not as conducive to Hollywood messages. So – so basically, yeah, it's it's the thing I'm most proud of. It's a true story of prisoners of war, uh, allied prisoners of war under the Japanese in World War II. And it just tells their story. It's kind of like a Schindler's List for the allies in terms of the, the suffering that um, our soldiers had to experience under the Japanese. But it's, it's more than a, a tale of suffering. It's a tale of redemption because it also talks about how the gospel actually comes into the camp and affects everyone and and challenges them in how to love your neighbor and ultimately how to love your enemy and what does that really mean so it's one of those really deep rich wow. stories that also is is brutally honest and and stuff so yeah very 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 uh it was an honor to make it and like i said um it's still my my favorite thing that i've done awesome great that's incredible <laughs> the um for your for your independent film projects, uh, please enlighten us. I, I I know there's a few things you've done as far as things like uh, uh, horror and stuff like that. I, I'd love yeah. to hear I'd love to hear more. Sure. Well, um, after that, uh, it was kind of an interesting experience because after you know you it was a long it was a it was a movie that was really well done and we had a lot of interest in it. We even had Walden Films at the time. This is a while ago, but Walden Films was going to buy it. 
and do an Oscar campaign and everything. But the problem was is it was R-rated and Walden, uh, the owner, was committed to never doing R-rated movies, which is Boo. insane because R- – <laughs> What? I was booing him. <laughs> it's insane because our movie is a perfect example of why you – there can be some really good R-rated movies. Mm. And they also, Walden also was going to buy The Passion of the Christ when, when that was being made. They could have really gotten behind it, but he wouldn't take the movie. He's a Christian who, own, who owned the studio, but he wouldn't take the movie because it was R-rated. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, come so, on. I also always find that a little bit odd because I feel like Jesus didn't create the uh, rating system for uh, yeah. motion pictures. So, like, why is it rated R is drawing a line? Yeah. So plus, like, the one movie that could be rated R, yeah. just justfully so, and most everyone would agree, and they wouldn't take it because of their standards, which, you know, it just shows you the hypocrisy and the, the silliness of the contemporary Christian standards. They're, they're often not biblical at all. But nevertheless, you know, um, and I thought, oh, this is going to open my career, you know, the big breakthrough, you know, but actually, unfortunately, it, that's, that's not what happened. It became a breakthrough for the director, but the writer kind of got left behind, and I had to start at square one again, and, and mm. which is very discouraging and, and all that. But, you know, I did it, and so I just started calling people I knew and started to try to get work again, and it was like starting off at square one. But um, And from the years after that, I, I've done a few movies. One was I adapted the um, – the, uh, best-selling horror novel called The Visitation by Frank Peretti. Oh, and oh, yeah. that's a horror story about this uh, cult leader who comes to town and he's, you know, and people start to think he's Jesus returned and he's actually demonic and all this stuff. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't that it wasn't that great of a movie. Uh, it was a low budget. And the director took it out of my hands and rewrote it. And he wasn't a Christian, so he really didn't – I didn't feel like he, he really understood the material well enough to, to really uh, do it well. So, um, But still, a lot of people I know like that movie. Um, if, they, if you want a, a good Christian horror film, it's, it's in that genre. you know. Um, and I, I, I wrote a movie called Alleged, which is the true story of the Scopes monkey trial. But not from the typical perspective that you normally see it, and um, that movie's you know it's 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 okay you know um, I think it, it shows you a different side of the Scopes Monkey Trial that you're not going to get anywhere else, uh, and some true things that people don't tell you about it. So that was kind of fun. So and I've done some documentaries where that I wrote and direct. I wrote and directed a documentary on the wall of separation between church and state that got on PBS actually. Um, it's one of the few non-communist, uh, documentaries that got on PBS. (laughs) And, um, so I was kind of surprised and shocked to be honest with you, but they, they did it. And, uh, you know, so I've done a few things like that. Um, but I've, I've been in the independent realm, which is basically, you know, rather than studio is when, you know, you, you start to get involved in the big money and all that stuff. And I've kind of stayed in the smaller realm again, where, writers and directors and producers can have a little bit more control of the material and it's been very very satisfying but it's also very hard to get movies made so you know in in the course of those years as a screenwriter i had to reinvent myself and find new ways to tell my stories because they're as with every career you always have some really low ebbs low um yeah low ebbs and uh, years where you don't make much money and it forced me to like you know reinvent myself and one of the ways that i reinvented it was to write novels uh-huh. and um so this is about eight nine years ago i had actually written a script about a bible character that no one had done in in decades and i found this 
amazing research that was so cool and fascinating about Nephilim giants and all this stuff that that a lot of people I I, I wasn't taught this stuff, but I studied it and I found out it's in the Bible. There's stuff about giants in the Bible, and this is really wild and freaky stuff. And I thought no one had ever done this in the movie before, mm-hmm. and so I wrote a screenplay about <laughs> Noah. And uh, this is about like nine years ago or so. And, and shortly after that, I realized I found out that Darren Aronofsky was trying to get his movie made, and I knew okay, he's going to beat me on that. So I thought. You know, I was wondering, oh, what did, did he find stuff that I found? So I thought I wanted my story out first. So I went ahead and wrote this screenplay as a novel. And that, that mm. was my first novel, which was Noah Primeval. And that became the beginning of a series of novels called Chronicles of the Nephilim, which is now eight novels. Mm. And it's I, basically what I do is I retell stories from the Bible where giants appear. And a lot of times they, they're mentioned, but you, you just sort of briefed over them. And a lot of people think it's just weird anomalies of history, but I, I actually think that there's a storyline, a theological storyline that's connecting that I call the war of the seed or the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent type of thing. And, uh-huh. and so it's a messianic struggle throughout the text, and you know, the epitome of that is, is, ends up in you know, the promised land where you know, Joshua and the spies go and they say, ah, the Anakim are in there. They're giants, right? You know, we've heard that story, but like, what does that mean? Well, th- there's a very deep theological thing going on there that has to do with the harem or the, the holy wars of Joshua, which were not really – they weren't like going and kill everybody. It wasn't. There was only specific tribes, and these specific tribes that they killed everybody actually had these Nephilim ancestors there. And those Nephilim go back to the flood, and that goes back to the strangest passage in the Bible, which is Genesis 6. It talks about the sons of God, divine beings in heaven, come to earth, you know, and they mate with women, and they bore them Nephilim giants, and these were the mighty men of old. It's this weird passage that I thought was the weirdest. Now, well, that's kind of the premise of the whole series. And what does that really mean? I, I never knew what it meant until I started studying it. And so Chronicles of the Nephilim is my way of sort of – I do what I call narrative theology. So I write theological novels. I write very entertaining, action-packed, sometimes romance, you know, because I come from Hollywood background. So I, I'm employing my Hollywood storytelling to, to write fascinating, entertaining stories from the Bible, retelling them with a supernatural fantasy-type flair to them, right? Spiritual warfare, that kind of stuff. But um, I'm embodying theology in a way that makes it fascinating and interesting rather than, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's boring. Theology is boring, but I try to embody it in, in, the, in the stories, right? And so that's, that was the Chronicles of the Nephilim series that it's been over the last you know, eight years or so. And the most recent series that I've just launched was, is Chronicles of the, the Apocalypse. And what that is, that's the story, it's the origin story of the book of Revelation. Most of the stuff today, if there are, if there are novels, we're all familiar with Left Behind, right? Hmm. Um, and, and, and most, most of the novels today about the end times, it's all about like who's going to be the Antichrist, the Pope's the Antichrist, or this, you know, and then they write these sci-fi conspiracy stories that you know, read like Marvel comic book movies um, <laughs> about what they think is in our near future having to do with the Antichrist and all this stuff. Well, I have a very different view than, than the, that popular uh, – uh, I'll call it the left behind view. You know, with the rapture and the tribulation, all that stuff. I have a very, very different view that ties it in with the first century. 
So I tell the story of the Apostle John writing the book of Revelation in the first century and how he how they understood it applied to that time period, which is very shocking to a lot of Christians, especially if they haven't been educated on it. Um, but it's all so it's all based on historical research and theological research. And that's sort of the that's the genesis of this latest series called Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And the first book is is called Tyrant Rise of the Beast. Yeah. And that's I have to tell you, it's it's a fun read. Um, I liked your characterization. You brought in a, a good amount of uh, of characters from varying backgrounds in the story. Yeah, the goal was to um, basically I wanted to explore. Okay, as a Christian, the first century is an amazing time period. We all know about the Book of Acts, but w- the one time period that I don't know about you guys. Uh, you you probably more educated than I was, but when I was younger, no one told me about the time period after the Book of Acts, unto uh, A.D. seventy, which is the destruction of the temple and the whole and the holy city Jerusalem. No one ever taught me that. There were, it was a jump from the Book of Acts to like, you know, uh, the Catholic Church and, or the Eastern Western split, and then the Reformation, all that kind of stuff. It's just this sort of like this period that no one taught me about, and I started discovering about it. And Josephus, the famous um, Jewish historian who lived through that time period, tell is the only resource we have. Well, the only uh, exhaustive resource we have that describes what turned out to be a three and a half year siege of the land of Israel by the Roman armies because. Um, because the Jews revolted against Rome. So the Roman uh, Nero, who was the emperor at the time, sent in his uh, armies led by Vespasian and Titus, and and they came in and, and basically demolished the land of Israel, ended up sieging and, and destroying uh, Jerusalem and the temple, right? And we may have heard of that, but there's fascinating details about this history that no one but this one viewpoint of the end times was teaching, and so I was fascinated by history, and the viewpoint's called preterism. And preterism, basically, the word means in the past, and it's basically saying that the last days or the end times are in the past, which means that the last days are not the last days of the earth or the last days of the world. They are the last days of the old covenant. So it's a very localized mm. Uh, interpretation of what that means. And it's a completely different paradigm that most Christians aren't familiar with. But um, as I explored that and discovered this, this stuff came alive to me. And so, like I said, I I realized the theology of it is very, there's a lot to it. It goes deep and it goes wide. And many Christians don't have time to get in or or, or aren't interested. But I thought if I could tell this story, just tell the story of it and, and, and this whole siege of Jerusalem and tell it through the, through the perspective of a Roman, a Jew and a Christian. And, um, since this starts to occur in around AD 64, the series starts with the great fire of Rome. And many people have heard that there was rumors, maybe Nero, uh, set the fire. We're not entirely sure, but it's, there's a good chance that he probably did set the fire of Rome or was you know, was behind it because he wanted to rebuild Rome in his own image. But then what happened was the people started to get uh, – started to really 
suspect this, right? And of course, it doesn't matter that you're the emperor of the, the known world and that you're considered a god, because if, if the people rise up, as we all see even in current day, you know, the, the mob can overthrow anybody, right? And, and so what he did was he decided to make a scapegoat of someone and, and blamed the great fire on the Christians. Why did he do that? Because they were going around saying that God was going to come back in vengeance and judge and judge everyone, and he was going to come back with flaming fire. And what they didn't know was what they, the Christians were talking about was what Jesus prophesied, which was that 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 he he God would come and destroy the temple in Jerusalem and the holy city of Jerusalem. But they sort of twisted that and made it go against the Christians, and that's what began the neuronic persecution of the Christians, which is where we get. We've heard of Christians being thrown to the lions and all that. That's where we. That's where that first began. The very first major persecution, um, by at least by non-Jewish, you know, by the Gentiles, because of course before that the Jews were already persecuting Christians in the Book of Acts, right? So that's kind of the beginning of the origin of all of it, and I found it so fascinating. And it's this whole, you know, like I said, it's like a, it's actually a seven-year period, of of Rome interacting with Jew uh, with Israel. And so I have a, a Christian who is a, a woman, and she's a servant. She's a, 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 kind of a slave of this Roman praetorian, and he's got a Jewish doctor who's helping him. He's sort of forced him to help him. And they are tasked by Nero. Nero has heard about this secret text that's been flowing around, which is the book of Revelation, right? And in that text, it's anti-Rome, right? And it talks about the end of the world. And he thinks that it's an assassination attempt on him. So he sends this Roman guy out, find it, track it down, find out what it is, who they are, kill him if you have to, find out if there's someone claiming to be this Jesus Christ resurrected, and if you can find him, kill him. So that's sort of the, the story that launches the, the whole journey. And in the course of that, we travel around the Roman Empire. We see through a Jewish eyes, through Christian eyes, and through Roman eyes, how that world was like and what it was experienced. And that was kind of my goal was to, that was the entertainment side of it. While they're trying to find out what's this secret letter, let's track it down. That's, of course, the, the letter of Revelation. And that's where we start to find out what it means and what's behind it. So that's kind of the genesis of it all. Okay. It's it's very well told too, and that the persecution part is it actually left me riveted uh, as I was listening because it was so descriptive of what was happening to them at that time in the stadium. Um, yeah, yeah, it's all based on research too. I mean, I went back to ancient sources, got everything I could of that that people that wrote about it. And so everything you read about the persecution of Christians in that story is stuff that was claimed to have actually happened. And that's what's so shocking about it, because like you said, I mean, I was shocked at the kind of stuff that they did, you know? Yeah. One of Nero's favorite things to do was to act out ancient pagan myths and stories in the arena that ended up with death. <laughs> so he would, you know, wow. he would take up like, um, uh, like the myth of Daedalus, you know, that which they knew about. That was Greek, but still, you know, Daedalus flew th too close to the sun, right? So they would right. put uh, Christians or people up on high places in the arena and push them off, and they just fall to the ground and crash and blood splatters everywhere. That's the kind of stuff that he did, you know. It was that, not just the lions and not just uh, crucifying, but um, playing out these these sick, twisted, macabre stories with that end in the deaths of Christians. Yeah.
Now, uh, question on uh, uh, the, uh, the the giant. Uh, uh, I forget his name. Was it? Gl- uh, uh, yeah. The, the <laughs> yeah. So, what, was is that based on an actual story? Yes, that's that's an actual character in history. I'm, so, is this I'm a, a literal opening... giant, or is this like? I mean, is this a Gabar- giant as I, as I would expect it on TV and movies? Yeah. No. No. Gabaris. Um, that's it. I. Okay. Here's what. Here's what I did. Um, in the book, and this is another thing for because what you just say there, I knew that the stuff I was going to be telling was going to be so fantastic and wild that people would be reading and going, is he just making this up? Right. You know, and especially when I'm like, I'm going to be just describing things like the book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation. I'm saying this was it. This was it. It happened. And I knew Christians are going to be going, no way. He's making that up. So what I did was I, fo- I end noted, I footnoted the entire book. All each book is footnoted. So if you're reading something and you're going, come on, really find the closest footnote. And I've, I've got as many footnotes as I do text of the, bo- of the, of the novel itself, because I really wanted to sort of sh- give people an opportunity. If you want to go deeper than just the story, you want to go deeper into the, the truth and facts and theology of it, re- you just read the footnotes, right? So um, there was actually a giant called Gabarus, Gabarus, I think, I think is what it was called, Gabarus. And um, I think it's in, uh, and I have the footnote back there, but I think it was in Tacitus or something. And he basically, and it, he's described as a flesh eat, meat eat, flesh eating giant, cannibalistic giant. And I think, I think he gave his height. They don't always give the height, but sometimes they do. Like Josephus gives an actual giant that he knew about and his height. And so I made Gabarus the same height as Goliath. Um, so I can't remember if that's in the text or not. But he said he was um, a large man and giant man and, and he ate flesh and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, and, and he was during Jeez. the time he was cl- under Claudius. And when Claudius, um, Nero was Claudius's uh, nephew. So Nero must have known this guy at that time. So imagine if this guy's still alive. When Nero becomes emperor, he's going to be one of Nero's favorites from the past, right? So, yeah, I, that's an example of a. I have a, amazing characters of history that you would never believe it. Uh, so that's why I had to prove it by putting the footnotes in there. That's awesome. Wow. And, and I think half of the book actually is footnotes, right? <clears throat> yep, half the book is, which sometimes disappoints people because they're like, I'm reading it. <laughs> it looks like it's halfway through the book, and all of a sudden it's like, what? But one of the things about my writing is uh, my fan base um, really, really seems to enjoy um, the, the research that I do. So in all, in all the Chronicles of the Nephilim, that previous series I, met, series I mentioned, I would have an appendix at the end of each book, and I would explain some of my research behind all the wild stuff because, like I said, same thing. I would find all this wild stuff in the Bible that I thought people if pe- people think I'm making this up, but it's in the Bible. So I did that, and Christians – I got many people who said, look, I love the appendix as much as the novels. So I ended up putting all those appendixes together in one single book of just the theology called When Giants Were Upon the Earth. And that book has sold as well as any of the books in the series. But in this new series of the Chronicles of the Apocalypse, it's, it's goes I go way beyond that because, like you said, literally – I have the same amount of text and footnotes. So this isn't just like, oh, I footnoted the name of the book where I got that from. I'm actually co- copying and pasting chunks from this, what the scholars say so that people can learn more about it and see exactly where I got it from. So it's not just boring footnotes. It's actually like a story in and of itself if you, if you, if you want to go down that path. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I actually, I love the uh, When Giants uh, Walk to the Earth. That's a, that's a fantastic book. Um, it may, it might be my favorite in the series because <laughs> cool. I have the whole series. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's that was one of the things. You know, when I first started this, you know, look, this is this is years ago. I come from an evangelical Reformed background, but you know, basic evangelicals and. You know, look, you know, I was worried because I'm thinking, man, the stuff I'm going to write about, I'm telling Bible stories. I'm going to be a heretic. They're going to call me a heretic, you know, because I do all this mythological research. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to tell a story that weaves in the Bible and ancient mythology and history to sort of show how where that stuff comes from. Because, you know, we have all these myths. They don't just pop out of nowhere. They're based on things that are probably true, but then mankind spins them and creates their own legends, right? So I wanted to sort of show, here's where all this stuff comes from. And um, when I was doing that, though, it was a real creative freedom for me because I would be scared. I was thinking like, man, am I playing with the word of God here, you know? (laughs) But I came to the realization that, no, I was doing what the ancient Jews actually did because the Jews have lots of texts that we now know. We call them the pseudepigrapha, um, and there's and other Second Temple Jewish literature where what they used to do, they had look. They believed the scriptures were the word of God, right? But they still would take those characters like Abraham or Moses, and they would sort of expand and tell new legends. And the purpose was theological. They weren't trying to add to the Word of God. They were just trying to say, you know, we want to give some more stories, and we want to encourage with more stories. We're going to use our biblical characters. We're going to sort of tell our own legends, but that they were trying to reinforce the, the theology that they believed in, right? And so I thought, well, I'm going to do something similar. I'm going to try to keep it as close to the Bible as possible, so I'm not going to contradict the Bible, but I'm going to fill in between the lines with fiction that could at least— Connect the dots. I'm not saying it all happened this way. I'm not saying this is the way it is. And the other thing was, was I, I said, look, the Bible talks about this spiritual world, right? We got angels. We got demons, right? But it doesn't so, show us a lot about it. We have, we have them occasionally entering into the scene. And, and in, in the New Testament, we, you know, Paul writes about principalities and powers in the heaven, we, heavenly places that are fighting. We read in Daniel. We just get glimpses, right? Daniel says, oh, the prince of Persia, which is a spiritual entity over Persia, you know, I'm, I, I went and fought with the prince of Persia. And and you've got these, these principalities over the nations in the Bible. And we don't necessarily recognize it, but there are some passages where it comes clear, like in Daniel. And that's where you get this idea that, wow— the, the ancient biblical view is that the earthly authorities, kings and princes and nobles or whatever, behind them were heavenly principalities and authorities. So whenever there was like, for instance, when there was a war between two kings or two nations, they believed that there was a heavenly war going on as well. And this is how the ancients understood this, right? And and they would use – they likened the gods – to stars and the heavenly host. So there's a lot of this poetic connection going on there, right? Well, the, the Bible talks the same way, that there's like in Deuteronomy 32, um, verses 8 through 10, it, it talks about at the Tower of Babel, 
God separated the nations and placed them under the authority of the sons of God. And I'm, I'm convinced that these sons of God are the fallen sons of God because they worship them as gods and God condemns them for doing so. And he says, you're going to be under their authority because you keep worshiping these false gods. I'm going to give you over to them. And he says, but I will keep Jacob for myself. So he paints this picture that the, God, the nations are under these territorial um, demonic entities, the sons of God who fell from heaven, and they worship them as false gods. So I said, what if the gods of the ancient world weren't just made up beings, but they were these fallen angels and that people were worshiping as gods? And that's sort of the fictional deceit, but in a way, it's theologically true anyway. So I depict these gods of the ancient world as fallen angels, but, you know, they're, they're being these gods of the world, right? And so that's the other element of all my series of novels, not just the Nephilim, but these new, this new series in the Chronicles of the Apocalypse. I'm saying, okay, let's, let's draw back the curtain and see what, what might that look like, you know? Um, and so, you know, you've got, you know, who is Satan described as in the Bible? He's the god of this world. What does that mean, right? What what did that mean? Well, if the world at the time, when you said the world, the word world, whether it was cosmos or more particularly oikumene, it meant the Roman world. So when you when they were saying Satan was the god of this world, it was saying that he was the territorial authority. I believe he's saying that he was the ter- territorial authority over Rome, and Rome was controlling everything. So he was the god of this world, but that that would one day be undone by Messiah, right? And so. So this is this sort of paradigm that I'm operating with, and I bring it into the Chronicles of the Apocalypse as well because when Messiah comes, he takes back the authority of the nations, and that's what allows the gospel to go forth because what does it say? Satan is bound. When Christ comes, he says, I bind the strong man. And what does that mean? Revelation 20, it says, it means that Satan is bound so he can't deceive the nations. So the, the gospel goes forth to the nations precisely because they're no longer under the authority of these demonic entities. God is now saying, I've taken the, the uh, real estate back, Messiah is here, and he now owns the earth, and he's going to draw all men from all nations in, into the kingdom. And that's, of course, what the new covenant is. That's what Christ brought. But until that old system, the old covenant, is completely destroyed, then you know, it, it, the new covenant comes in with Christ and the death and resurrection and ascension, but the old covenant isn't gone yet because the temple's still standing. So the Chronicles of the Apocalypse series, my novels, explains how this ending of the old covenant is finalized in the destruction of the elements of the old covenant, which is the, the Jerusalem, the priesthood, and the temple. When that is physically destroyed in history, since God is a God of history, God does. God isn't a God of philosophy. He doesn't just say spiritual things like, oh, well, Jesus went into the heavenlies and he once secured salvation. And now there's a new covenant and the old covenant circumcision isn't needed anymore. And imagine the Jews standing around there going, what are you talking about? It's still here. How, how can you just say that? God always performs in history what he is theologically communicating to us spiritually. And that's why mm-hmm. the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem is so crucial to this uh, you know, New Testament, New Covenant story because it's the final ending of that old covenant and the new covenant then takes 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 on. And of course, we know historically from that point on uh, until that point, Christians were still, you know, they were getting out. Paul was getting around, but 
Christians were still sort of localized and they didn't get out. And when when the temple was destroyed, Christians were spread out. And then that's when the gospel started spreading like like wildfire, fire, you know. And that's when Judaism also died, right? The, it, it never was – it would never rise again except in a bastardized, unbiblical form called rabbinic Judaism, which is not even biblical. So you could see how like, oh, that's the whole end of that whole old covenant system, the old covenant world. It's the last days. It's the end of the age of the old covenant. And the new age of the new covenant is here. And that's kind of the – stop me before I keep rambling on. But that's that's <laughs> sort of the, the theology of what's going on. And, and again, a lot of people might find that interesting, fascinating, new, fresh. Um, but it can be heady, right? And I'm like, yeah. all right, I want to tell a cool story that can – that can replace Left Behind series. <laughs> well, I can see why evangelicals would have issues with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially, you, you know, when you take away their chances for future prophecy being fulfilled, yep. it, it takes away some things that they're looking forward to. <laughs> Uh, Wait, you guys aren't you guys aren't evangelicals, are you? Hey, I I grew up evangelical, so I get it, man. I I, I totally get it. Well, that's that's one of the reasons why I really felt that when I first started out, I felt like, boy, I'm going to really have to prove this because I'm going to be attacked. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. what it what, but to be honest with you, I have to admit, I was far more accepted than I realized, and and the, I have dominated. If you go on Amazon, you look at the book categories you go to biblical fiction and i dominate the top 10 top 20 with all my these series because i'm they're they're selling really well and i guess i just have to admit there was a lot more acceptance from evangelicals than i had ever anticipated and i'm grateful for that but they also have appreciated me uh you know, giving the research because that they want to learn and they want to, you know, they're not happy with just a good story. They always like to have things explained to them, you know, and that's, that's not always a good thing, but, but sometimes it is. And, and that's kind of where I'm in that in-between world where it's like, look, I like to, I like to tell the good story, but I'm okay to explain it to them if they wanted to explain. That's cool. And that's kind of what I do. And I think that's, that's the unique niche that I have at least in, in, in that realm. So do you catch a lot of it? Like, uh, do you catch a lot of, uh, criticism from people that don't interpret the Bible or the teachings the same way as you? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, there's always going to be some fundamentalists who, who do, you know, like, Oh, I'll, I'll take the Bible literally, you know, I don't believe this, but there, in all honesty, in all these years, I've, it's a handful of people. I, you know, maybe I'm look, it's not, I may be a bestseller in biblical fiction in Amazon. It's not a huge category, okay? So I'm not selling hundreds of thousands of copies. And maybe if, if I got into that range uh, of that kind of status, I might get more attention. I might get attacked more. Mm. Uh, nevertheless, I, I've done very well. I've, I, I've, done, I've been selling very well, and I'm very happy and pleased with it. And so I'm surprised that I'd say, you know, 1% of people have, have – Giving me negative comments, it's I'm I'm amazed. Well, well, Brian, it, for the fundamentalist uh, evangelical, what what do you think the one issue the most they take they take with with your books? What is is there a common theme well, that they say? You know, oh no, you cannot take that away from me. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the few responses that it had, well, okay, usually it's the it's the sex and violence because mm. i uh that's the first thing and that's the usual thing for christian uh evangelical christians is they have a hard time with sex and violence and definitely no bad words and i have a couple of those every once in a while where 
you know, I, I'm portraying evil, and uh, the right, world right. is very wicked. I mean, Genesis says that the, you know, that the the intent of man's heart was only evil continually. That is pretty, and it says the world was so full of violence. That's why God destroyed it, right? So I, tr- I, I wanted to depict it accurately, and so I. You know, I do show some wickedness uh, on all levels. Um, I, you know, I try to be – I'm not X-rated or anything like that. But nonetheless, it's R-rated at times. Mm-hmm. And that's been the most response that people say, man, you know, it's just it's just too much. I, You know, I can't handle it or I want to read this to my kids but I can't. That kind of stuff, you know. That's been the most response. And I, I respect that to be – Well, that was the same thing for Passion of the Christ and, uh, um, and Noah, right? Was people yeah. complaining about the violence and stuff like that? Right? Well, yeah, the Noah movie was just. I, honestly, I don't think the Noah movie. I don't think people had. Okay, Christians in general don't tend to have as much problem with violence. You can I can wax a lot on the hypocrisy of that. Uh, they have with, <laughs> no, really, they have the problem with the language. Yeah, and yeah, you're sex. Right. That's true. You're right. That's true. Yeah, I know. There, so, um, even like in the most recent movie, um, I'm a big fan of the remake of It. Yeah. And, uh, if you, so if you read that book, there's a, there's a sex scene, um, and everyone was like freaking out about it. However, no one says a thing about the six year old kid getting his arm bitten off <laughs> and then getting kidnapped. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> consensual sex. No. The kid getting yeah, his yeah, arm yeah. bitten off. No, not like, that's fine. That's fine. We can do that. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting because I, I actually don't have a problem from a, uh, for me, it's not a moral issue, but it is a de- it, it is a market issue. And mm. and as an author, and a, I want to reach a wide demographic. And I've actually softened on my own. You know, I got some of that out of my system. I'm like, okay, I'm going to show the wickedness of the world, man. If you don't like it, <laughs> tough luck. But the truth is, is I do want more Christians to read it. And so over the over the years, I got I've adapted a little bit. And this newest series, um, I think I'm I think I'm I'm more balanced, and I think. Christians will be able to handle Chronicles of the Apocalypse better than Chronicles of the, of the Nephilim if they have a problem with that stuff. Uh, but but to be frank, look, uh, when when you sen- – not censor, that's not a good word. But when you hold back on being too graphic, what it is – sure, it can be uh, – it can be an artificial uh, imposition of someone else's values. But it could also just simply – be a way to be more creative, and this is you know this is the thing about the the movies in the 50s and, and 40s and 50s when they first started the Hayes Code in in Hollywood you know where they start saying okay you can't show all this and that well the way that they got around it was to be more creative and that's why some of the best movies ever for for creativity is that so what I'm saying is knowing my demographic. Challenged me to say, okay, Brian, can you still deal with depravity and wickedness, but but not be as as graphic, but still still communicate the impact? And I believe I've done so with this new series. And and um, I don't know if you if you agree with that or not, but uh, I still think that you've got a sense of wickedness, and there still is some violence in there. It's just it's it's not it's just a little a little bit held back than it was in Chronicles of the Nephilim, if that makes sense. What about from the theological uh, point of view? Like, if, is there anyone pushing back and saying, hey, you can't move that prophecy, that that it can't go there? 
Um, yeah, there are definitely. And look, there are going to be people who give me a one star on Amazon only because they don't agree with the theology. It has nothing yeah. to do with what not good story. Know, right. Michael, right. Michael is to tell everybody is like, look, I'm not trying to prove my. I'm not trying to prove this to you. I really. I really just want to tell a great story, and this is what I believe, mm -hmm. but I want to write it in such a way that you can still find it a fascinating story and learn about history because I argue I'm being consistently consistent with history. So you can learn about this history time period, learn about uh, how the Bible was understood in that time period. You don't have to agree with the theology of it. That's my goal. So if, uh, My goal is for people to say, wow, I really enjoyed the book. I don't agree with the, the end times view, but – really good story and I've gotten some of those people um, and I've gotten a few people who are just like you know this is heresy because preterism is heresy <laughs> and they won't even read anything you know um, but not not that many you know but then yeah. again I think that that crowd who's really into Bible prophecy end times they just read their own stuff and they, you know they, they just true. want to read the latest yeah. description of who the Antichrist is you know I, I agree so, I agree it's yeah. It's it's almost comically incestuous if you if you that crowd. Yes, <laughs> if they get a hint that it's got a preterist viewpoint, it's like they're not going to go near it. It's it's heresy to them. Yeah, and so they yeah. won't even look at it. And and that's why I try to tell people up front. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, trick them. You know, uh, so I kind of let it known like, okay, this is a story. Here's what it's about. Nero and about Christians, of the first century. And it talks about the book of revelation, how it applies to the first century. So at least they get an idea before they enter it. I don't want them to read it and go, Hey, what is this? I don't like this, you know? So I try to do that, but, uh, I also feel like, you know, don't be so hung up. It, you don't really have to, you don't have to agree with me. You, it's still a great story. You know? Right. Yeah. Have, yeah. have you ever thought in an effort to, uh, um, and not that I want to, you know, if you have your vision, you know that that's art. That that's good. Have you ever thought in an effort to reach more um, a broader audience? Have you ever tried uh, creating something that maybe with like more subtle undertones of Christianity, or maybe something that's implied that could be found later instead of like something that's very forward? And yeah. Well, that's an interesting question because um, I actually, uh, my, when I started out in Hollywood. That was my goal was to – I want to write secular movies and I have a Christian worldview but I don't necessarily need to – I don't need to have a Christian message or whatever. But it so happened that the first movie I wrote, it was a true story by the way. I, you know, right, Someone right. gave the book to me and it just so happened it was about a Christian. But you know, I argue it's probably – Twindle Wars is probably the best secular movie that has a Christian worldview in it. Uh, there's a few of them now that I would definitely you know, argue that I, that I would – that I like, but I, I believe it's one of the best. So my goal in writing, in, in making Hollywood movies was actually to do that. But you also have to do the work that you get paid and the things that came my way started to be that. And when I, yeah. when I came, when I came up with the idea of writing novels, I would never, I never wanted to tell Bible stories. I always thought, why would, why would you want to write a novel about a Bible story when you just read the Bible? That's silly. <laughs> So I, I actually didn't want to write Bible stories, but um, so my whole th interest was simply I discovered this this storyline thread of the Nephilim and the Watchers and the the War of the Seed. It was this exciting thing that's called it's called Christus Victor, which is a theory of atonement, and it's Christ against the powers, and that's what that's what this storyline was that I found, 
And I'm like, I just want to tell this because I find it fascinating. So I don't actually have an agenda for anything. I don't have an agenda for Christians, non-Christians. I'm just telling a great story in the Bible. I don't really care who reads it. So in truth, it's it's kind of funny here. I've ended up becoming this author of Bible stories. And, and look, let's face it. Christians are the ones who are mostly interested in that. So I'm not – when I write my stories, I don't care who's writing it. I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm just trying to tell a great story. And I have unbelievers. Oh, and I have believers. So I don't really have an agenda. I I do have an awareness of my market, but I don't yeah. – um, if this makes any sense, I don't – like I don't write Christian stories. I just write great stories. And I have a Christian worldview and, oh, these happen to be about the Bible. So yeah, you know, but it's there's no agenda. So yeah, that's – so that's how I approach it. However, I will say this: um, because I've 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 always been a bipolar in my creativity and my theology. So I've always been someone who loves in the intellect, but I also love the imagination. And so I've struggled with that throughout the years because you tend to either be one or the other, but you feel bi- bipolar when you love them both. So I love writing, studying theology for hours and hours about weird, obscure things that nobody else cares about. And I spent a lot of time doing that. And then I love the imagination. I love watching movies and writing stories and all this, right? So all that happened was I studied this this end times theology for for years, and it just it just uh, sometimes I wondered if it was a waste of time, you know. But what happened was I were like, wow, if I can embody this into my storytelling, so it's like the perfect combination of just look, I just want to tell a great story, and I want to tell a story. With this theological edge to it, that's all. It's like theological narrative, you know. So, I don't know. It's hard to describe. It's a it's a good question, but if if it makes any sense, I'm technically not. I don't have an agenda of trying to uh, persuade or slip in or be subtle. I just like this is the best way to tell this story, and I, I'm not going to be. I'm I'm just going to tell what works the best. And if being bold or being outright, being explicit works the best, I'll do that. If being subtle works the best, I'll do that too. But it just so happens that when you're dealing with, you know, stories about the beginning of the Christian church, you know, it's going to be explicit. It, who, You know, so it doesn't really matter. That's true. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've really enjoyed all of them. Um, I was uh, – I first dived into, uh, into the Chronicles of Nephilim. From from Heiser's work actually because it was brought up on one of his podcasts in one of the chat rooms and uh, and I said is this any good and he's like oh yeah I, I highly recommend it and so I went through the whole series and uh, cool and loved it and I we- I would even grab uh, uh, the kin- the Kindle book and then I would also grab the audio book to listen while I was driving so I could do both at the same time. Cool, man. That's cool. Yeah. Look, I, I see myself as sort of I'm like the the narrative version of Heiser's theology because uh, his his book, I actually I had read his book when he when he, when he was first just working on it, because before like now he's sort of well known. But before he and that book actually made him well known, I think. So he's sort of exploded on the scene here. But before he was even known, he had that book for free PDF online, right? right? So I somehow discovered it online and that's what, and, and so 
it was the unseen realm before it was the unseen realm. Mm. That's what opened it up to me. And that was what inspired me to actually write the series in a, in a way. And so I kind of see my novels as being the embodiment of his theology, you know, in a, in a very real sense. Now, I, I've drawn and studied lots of other scholars, but he was sort of the, the doorway that opened it up, you know. But, but I also tend to agree with him more than most anybody else. You know, I, I – Look, I'm I'm not into there. There's what I call the Nephilim nuts, you know, and there's this whole <laughs> whole underground conspiracy theory world of people who just read everything about giants and Nephilim and all this kind of stuff. And I I appreciate it, and I have some some common interest, sure, but I think a lot of that stuff is just obsessive and wasting time. Yeah, I'm yeah. more my, Michael's more of like a responsible version of addressing weird things we got to address them and sometimes it's not what we think and let's face it there are giants but look they're not 20 footers all right <laughs> they're like seven no really and biblically they're seven to at most nine feet and oh, that's I agree. it i agree you know that kind of stuff you know and and i mean there's even a strong scholarly argument based on the septuagint that goliath was only six foot nine not nine foot six so, mm. you know, and, and I have no problem with that. He's still tall compared to the five foot five average of that time period. That's a giant, right? Yeah. Because a giant is not what we think it is. We think of Jack and the Beanstalk when we hear the word giant. But yeah. to them, the word Nephilim simply means mighty warriors that were tall, you know? Giborim. So, giborim, yeah. <laughs> well, giborim, giborim is actually a word that means mighty warrior. And so David's mighty men were called giborim too. Yeah. It's true. So the Nephilim were gibberim, which means Nephilim actually means giant, and it does mean tall person. But it but the, it says that the Nephilim were gibberim, which means mighty men. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so so I love Heiser, and I love how he doesn't go down the pathways of kookiness, and and I I tend to I tend to be in his camp. You know, it's like okay, this stuff. Is really it's there in the Bible, but uh, this obsession with you know, like, in fact, I'm on his podcast called Par Paranormal. We great uh, podcast about one, yeah, once a month we I'm on there with a couple other people, uh, friends of his, like from different. We're all in different sort of realms, just getting a a layman's view. But we look at scholarly literature that has to do with paranormal things, nice. and eventually one day I'm sure we're going to talk about like the 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 elongated skulls. You know, in the Nephilim nut crowd, <laughs> the elongated skulls of Brazil is a very you know those are Nephilim, those are Nephilim, and and you know I I don't believe that I I don't you know <laughs> I believe that it may have something to do with them trying to mimic some something that was spiritual. You know what I'm saying that might be connected, but those aren't Nephilim, right? So we debunk a lot of that stuff while at the same time saying, okay, but look, there is weird stuff in the Bible and maybe there's more to this picture than what we, our rationalistic, post-enlightened scientific minds like to reduce everything to material, right? <laughs> and that's kind of cool. I agree. Join us for the rest of the conversation in part two.